0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart podcast, episode 159. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and back with me is my co-host. Well, most of the time co-host, almost all the time co-host, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, how are you doing today? Good. I guess if you're
1: going to have a co-host, I'm probably more often than not. Is that probably a better way to put it?
0: Yeah, well of course you do have the most appearances on the show and uh All right. yeah, maybe at some point we'll just always just co-host, but no, happy <laughs> to have you back on. Thank you. And I tell you what, it's uh it's a good time to be on because we have a lot going on with volatility. We have quite a bit going on in regards to the markets and what's going on there. Little little bit of a you know, a skirmish going on other places and so let, let's kind of start with uh, the big news, though. Amazon, Jay, is splitting their stock 20 for one. Um, they're doing also a $10 billion buyback. Is that a big deal or is that no big deal?
1: Well, you know, as an options trader, I love that they're splitting the stock, right? I mean, buying one contract of Amazon when it's trading at, you know, $2,000 a share Means I'm, you know, I've got a lot of notional that I've got at risk, right? What would, would did Amazon hit? 2,700 on the, on the bottom the other day before this announcement. So I love that they split it. It's going to generate a lot of option volume. Now I can include Amazon in a portfolio where I want to manage my risk, all those kinds of things. So it's, I think it's a big deal for the options trader. Uh, I did hear that um, when Amazon does its split, it will become the number one traded stock i think they're doing 20 for one is that i think that's the number and so all of a sudden if you just take their current volume multiply it by 20 which will be the immediately immediate open interest uh it's going to be really interesting and exciting so from an options perspective that's definitely uh interesting i kind of made a face when i heard the buyback not to you just now but i'm just saying when i heard the announcement i was like i know 10 billion dollars sounds like a lot of money but it's it's not really a big buyback, right? Is it? Is it? It's not even one percent, right, Derek, of their of their market cap.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that because they have their market cap is one point. It's right around one point five trillion. So, ten billion, what is that like? I'm doing math in my head. I should know this about three quarters of one percent. Right, right. Yeah. So. Okay.
1: Th- thanks. Right. Great. That's um, nice. You're giving back a little bit, so that will push the stock up a little bit. But you know, you get the that you know uh, we hear it all the time that that no value, but increases value from a split. Right? Stocks go up when there's a split. There's some excitement around the stocks uh, that just cause some uh, you know a bullish bias. And we saw it with obviously Tesla. We've seen it with Apple. We saw it with Google with their announcement last month or two months ago so uh yeah like i think i don't think it's a bad thing i don't think it adds a ton of value but as an options guy i like that now we can you know include it in a portfolio if i wanted to if i wanted to use options as a representative exposure
0: i think bob Pisani had a little piece on CNBC that there's data going back to 1980 and, and this is what he had on there that stocks who split tend to outperform ones that don't split he also pointed out that guess what, if you're going to split your stock and not a reverse split, you know, where it's 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 10 to 1, 20 to 1 in this case. Like your stock has to have been going up over some period of time to be able to do that. Like nobody's splitting a stock a $10 stock 20 for 1. Like we what's we today it was like 5 bucks a share. I didn't even know they went public. I guess they went public through a SPAC. But I didn't know either. Nobody's putting WeWork uh, twenty for one. It's not happening. So, I mean, these stocks already had momentum, right?
1: Yeah, and I guess it usually is uh, right a uh, the result of appreciation in stock price. But yeah, I, I don't. I did hear something that. Um, and I could be completely wrong on this, but you know, it, now it allows Amazon to give stocks as a bonus, stock ownership as a bonus, to their to their employees at twenty seven hundred dollars. What do you mean, give somebody, you know, one stock when they're making forty thousand dollars a year? Mm-hmm. It's a big single bonus. So now I think it 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 uh, it, it certainly uh, enables that too. So I think there's you know an associate benefit. I think there's a little bit of a shareholder benefit they're giving back a little to the shareholders it's hard to think that this is a bad thing you ask me is it a good thing i think in general it's a good thing but it's it's not something that makes me go out and buy amazon stock tomorrow
0: yeah i'd agree and there really is no fundamental difference and and if you just take let's say they earned 10 million dollars a share and they had a million shares outstanding well guess what it's uh, what is that? 10 dollars per share you make in, in earnings per share. Is that right? Did I do that right? Something 10 like million that, yep. Yeah, 10 million of earnings, a million shares, you, you have 10 dollars per share. And then it's like, okay, well if you split your stock 20 for one, then you have or 10 let's do 10 for one, then you have 10 million shares. You still have those same earnings, and it it's sort of it doesn't really change that much. It's not like, well, you don't have the same money. earnings
1: per share. You still have the same yeah. earnings for the company, but it gets cut by 10 X, right? So it's a dollar, right?
0: Right. Per share. right. So your earnings yeah. per share go down, but you still have the same earnings. Like the company is still making the same amount um, and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with you on the buyback though. That's, and it, and obviously in that same example, 10 million of, You know, a million dollars in revenue, a million shares. You you buy back half your stock to to five hundred thousand shares. Now you you go from a dollar per share EPS to two dollars per share. Anyway, enough math there, Jay. Um, Yeah, I agree. Not not that big of a deal. But it used to be a bigger deal. Do you remember when? um, Like, what was it? Late '90s. If you split your stock, all of a sudden because of the commissions, people could buy more shares. With the same amount of money and that was like a big deal a lot of people wouldn't buy stock it's like oh what am i gonna buy three shares and only you know again i could pay 200 in commissions right so uh, i tend to agree jay
1: yeah those days are gone i i but you know there's always some excitement when you're splitting the stock because then it just feels like oh i got more shares right i don't know right it's there's a little psychological benefit there but again fundamentally no benefit we've we've hammered that in pretty well i think but like you said, good stocks split their stock; bad ones don't. But they don't split them forward; they reverse split them, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's a whole lot of the conversation. I will tell you that back in the day when people used to get physical stock certificates, every now and again somebody would find certificates in a in an attic or something, and these certificates might have been you know fifty years old. And I do remember somebody came in with a physical certificate. I think it was Coca Cola. And they had a certain number of shares, and they look and they see the price of Coca-Cola, and they say, "Okay, well, that's pretty cool. You know, maybe I have uh, 200 shares at 30 bucks." But when that st- stock certificate got put into the transfer agent and then reissued, they had to reissue it at whatever the split-adjusted shares were. And I remember this. This one person came in, found it in the attic. Fifty years ago, they bought it. I don't know how many splits there were, but it was quite a bit of money. They were pleasantly surprised to understand what what happened there. But uh, I don't think anybody does physical stock certificates anymore, unless you buy Disney. You still, I guess you you have the mouse ears on the stock certificate, right? Oh well, yeah. yeah, and then and you you frame it and you put it up in the baby's room.
1: Like uh, I don't know, you didn't do that for your son. I think we did it for mine. <laughs> I think we still have it, actually.
0: Yeah, he owns Disney in his uh, you know, his small account. Uh, don't buy Disney just because I told you, not a recommendation, of course. But uh, yeah, no, he, he owns it. But I like the fact you actually bought the shares, Jay. That's smart. I got the shares. I got a certificate.
1: And I get like a 50 cent check every quarter or <laughs> something for the dividends. I don't know if my wife actually uh, deposits
0: that. There's, there's probably a big stack of them somewhere. That's gonna be like the Seinfeld episode. What was it? The uh, the the show he was on was it in Japan? And he gets these little checks, and he and he used to hurt his hand trying to sign all the checks. I don't know if you remember that episode. But all right. Well, speaking of checks, let's check a couple other things too. And you know, we just talked about share counts and those things. What we're seeing in the markets is I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting in that what the market is willing to pay. For every dollar of earnings has shrunk. And not only did it shrink last year, it is shrunk. Hopefully I'm using the right uh, tense there this year as well. Jay, I think I mentioned earlier that year to date earnings are up. Now, these are the fourth quarter quarter earnings being reported now, but they're up a little over a little under three percent. But people are willing, we think about the PE ratio, you know, how many times earnings, like if you have a dollar of earnings, and it's, it's 10 bucks a share, you're, it's trading at 10 times. Jay 13.6 multiple growth this year. So people aren't willing to pay the same amount. And I think it's maybe it's constructive to think about, like, okay, so when analysts, when you're watching TV, and you hear these really smart people come on, and they're, and they're trying to make you know, estimations of, of the future. I mean, what are some of the areas that they're trying to figure out, like what goes into the earnings and what goes into the the stock price movement? Right.
1: Yeah, it's almost like uh, there's two ways that I I like to think of where the market reflects uh, its emotional bias. Right. We know the, the market is emotionally driven. Right. Fear and greed drive the market when people are greedy you could almost equate it to a higher multiple. When people are fearful, you could equate it to a lower multiple. Derek, I think the term you were looking for instead of shrunk was contraction, maybe. Maybe that's the term that they use. Sure. It's a better one. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, so multiples have contracted, uh, which tells me that, you know, there's less optimism, for the growth of the stock market, because people aren't willing to pay as much for for, for the earnings that they're uh, that they're planning on getting. And so that contraction is really interesting. Um, uh, it's just one of those things that should follow. So even though companies are making more money, the stock market is down, right? So there's one of the, one of the things I always say that the things that drive the market are corporate earnings and interest rates. Well, you know, being willing to pay a little less, For those earnings can cause the result of a lower market and so yeah that's that's kind of i you know i'm not sure if i went off on a tangent there derek but that emotional disposition of the market uh can definitely be reflected in the uh the contraction of the
0: of the market multiple i was listening jay to another podcast where they were talking about this investor letter and it's a semper augustus investor letter so this looks like to be a a fund or a hedge fund, and what they did was they they broke down these different ten-year periods, and I thought it was interesting the way they they did it. Where they said, "Okay, if your revenue goes up, okay, that's good. That's good for companies." The the other part of that is how much you make on every dollar of revenue. So if you have a ten percent margin on a million dollars, you make uh, you know hundred thousand dollars, and then you look at that and you say, "All right, well, what else goes into?" the price of a stock. All right, well, uh, we know we, we eventually come to earnings per share, but it's what is the, on the total return basis, what is it paying out on a yield? And of course, buybacks are a quasi-dividend, but this is just a pure dividend. And then the share count, and we mentioned early on the how many shares there are. So if companies buying back their stock, that reduces the share count, increases the earnings per share. But that multiple, J. that's you know, I think margins and multiples definitely move around. To give everyone an idea, uh, looking at, you know, 2012 all the way through the end of 2021, the PE multiple was 23.6. So people were willing to pay 23.6 times. But if you go back to, let's say, uh, oh, I don't know, the 99 to uh, end of 09 period. So, you know, that's, year 2000, full year 2000, all the way through the end of 2009. But what happened there? And there, it was a re-rating as well. So the multiple dropped from 284 to 19.6%. i am not going to keep throwing numbers out, but the point is people were willing to pay less for stocks. That was a lost decade of stocks. Your annual return was pretty much a little bit annualized, less than 1% a year. And margins went down as well. So Jamie, just thinking about Looking forward, I mean, people should be listening and watching. Are revenues going up? Right? Margins are they changing? And I think that impacts a lot. But I think it was it was just I don't know. To me, it was interesting to think about. Yes, earnings going up is obviously good, but there's more to it, right?
1: Yeah, there there, there is a little more to it, and you've laid those those uh, main metrics out, right? So, end revenue, which is partially driven by shares and your you know your efficiency. How many shares you have outstanding, your yield that you're paying back investors, and then whatever the multiplier, the multiple on that is, that kind of drives it, right? So those are kind of the main data points that kind of go into, uh, you know, the corporate earning side of, uh, uh, of market projections. And yeah, and in that decade, you mentioned the lost decade from uh, really, you know, the end of 99 to the end of 09, which maybe we'll just say 2000, uh, you know, 2010, um, Market market revenue grew like uh, sales were up. Right. So it's one of those things that it's not always the top line revenue that 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 matters. Right. It's how much you flow to the bottom line. And uh, it's just it's one of those things that, uh, you know, that multiple contraction can matter on uh on the end result. So it's a good point. And you know, we are, as you mentioned, last year we saw multiple contraction, even though the last decade we've seen multiple expansion, meaning that multiple has gone up. Um I guess the question is do we get more multiple contraction in today's environment with where things are going? I guess, you know, how do I take that data from all this history we've just quoted and, you know, and work it into my next investment that I make. And you know, when, I, when, you, when you think about it for today, uh, it, it's hard to see a reversal in that multiple contraction in, in, in the near-term near term future. And again, not making a prediction on where the market's going to go, but um, I think investors are going to start to become a little more picky about how
0: much they are willing to pay for stocks. I think it also goes to the point, you know, we've, for a long time, we saw people come on CNBC and say, the market's too expensive. The market's too expensive. You know, we're way out of the, whether they use the the CAPE ratio or the Shiller PE, right? Or they use just a strict forward uh, PE ratio, which is not trailing earnings. It's based upon estimates and estimates can change. I mean, they they were around 23, I think, 20, I don't think they ever got the 24. Um, you know, that was not that long ago. And as of the close yesterday, the, the forward PE was, I'd say, only 18 and a half. And I'll, they'll remind you that the the twenty five year average was sixteen point eight five percent. So we're getting close to the twenty five year average. I guess the question is too. I mean, earnings are an estimate. Does all this stuff that's going on, whether it be interest rates, whether it be the you know the Fed making some some move to try and combat inflation, um, the, the conflict that's going on overseas right now. I mean, those are all things. That could play a role in earnings. Um, I, I guess margins here are, are something to watch like can can companies continue to to pass on additional cost into consumers? I don't know, but that's the way I look at it, Jay. I'm not sure if you're you're thinking the same way too.
1: Well, you just hit on a couple points, right you just you just you jumped to the answer, right? You talked about margins being impacted probably because you're implying that inflation is higher, right due to what's going on in the world these days. and then what the Fed does that potentially reduces sales, right. Or top line revenue, right. Those two things uh, that exist today can definitely impact the end results on earnings. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, the, the, the willingness for the consumer to continue to pay higher rates at some point will get stretched. Doesn't, I'm not sure we've had it yet, uh, but, you know, starting to feel that way. Um, You know, I, I, you know, a a, a data point of one here, you know, that I think we probably got to touch on is filled up my gas tank the other day. Right. And, uh, I have a 23 gallon tank on my SUV. And guess what? Uh, the pump stopped me at a hundred dollars and I wasn't full yet. Right. So it's like, Oh yeah, that hasn't happened to me since, 2008, the summer of 2008, when when gas got about five bucks a gallon. So, yeah, like we're going to start to see some demand destruction from higher rates. So, can it hurt revenue? Yes. Will inflation hurt margin? Yes. Will the Fed also hurt revenue? Yeah, they need to slow the economy down. So, all of those things seem like, you know, probably justify why investors aren't willing to pay to, you know, or why they
0: want to pay less for stocks, hence lower PE ratios. I wonder, too, if, well, it's just, just on inflation, too. I, I think it's, what I love about the markets as well is everyone could, could look at something that's really obvious. Like this, what you just described, seems pretty obvious. And then markets continue to surprise. I mean, we know that predictions are often false. I mean, that, that's why our sort of mantra is you stay invested. We know that missing even the best couple of days in the market considerably hurt returns in the long run, annualized returns, right? So we just buy and hedge. I mean, that, that said, I wonder too, like inflation, this isn't a surprise. Inflation has been high for a while. But JD, don't you think that maybe people's expectations on longer-run inflation are going up now? And it's, it's the experience you just described. Like People are filling up their gas tanks and like, wow, this is grossly expensive now compared to what it was. I don't know how much that that impacts things, but the the excuse of "Hey, once COVID's over, prices will come back down." I don't think that holds water anymore, right? No,
1: it it definitely doesn't. Right, the supply chains haven't repaired themselves yet. Right, we're still, you know, uh, uh, grocery stores and and other stores shelves are not full, and now you've got this added cost of food, energy, and materials from uh what's going on uh, uh with russia and the ukraine and those those may not go away even after you know like i think if after this russia conflict uh resolves itself i think i i think we could see a hundred dollar barrel oil for a long time and that was not my opinion uh before two weeks ago or three weeks ago we thought well there's going to be a little bump here on the road and that'll iron itself out but now you know the Sanctions that governments are talking about—you're going to start to take, you know, Russian oil off the market, and all of a sudden, you go, okay, oil's going to be higher for a while. I, you know, uh, dark. I think you told me this, right? You, Ukraine is one of the largest wheat providers uh, uh, in that part of the of the world, right? And, and to, to Africa, well, so there's still going to be a problem, right? After this is done, so I do think it's going to be here for a little while. Uh, it's not, it certainly isn't transitory. And it's at this point, no one's even really talking about how COVID be- is over and inflation should go back to normal. That's, that just doesn't seem like it's, it's in the, in the, going on in the dialogue
0: these days. I think it, I don't know, I think you're right. And I'm always reminded of the fact that back, taking us back to maybe 2008 and what people said versus what actually happened. And I think a lot of times, uh, When, whether it's someone going on CNBC or a Fed official, like you can't say, I don't know. So I remember uh, uh, ex-chairman Yellen saying, you know, hey, I don't think there's a problem in housing, you know, a couple of years later. I'm not calling her out and saying, but it's just, it's just the nature of it. So when you had people coming on and saying, look, I mean, supply chains, once we get the shipping, once COVID's over, people start spending money on more experience-based things. I mean, it's it, this is um, yeah we've had these external factors that continue to to provide no relief for inflation. And I think one of the things too, we know that inflation never goes away. In other words, the the inflation that we have right now, the the rate of change will slow, hopefully, and, but over time it goes up. But once you have it, like when we had high inflation in late seventies, early eighties. It's not like inflation was negative 20% for three years to get rid of all the gains. So it's sort of embedded now. Um, I don't know. And, and I think for me, and maybe we can talk about this for, for a second too. I don't, there's, there's no oil that's coming on like tomorrow. And I think I was listening to some experts uh, talking about you know that there's to get a rig up and going and to drill and to explore they've got to invest money it takes time um so yeah we're we're sort of at where we're at right now right
1: yeah no i th- i think that's right i think uh uh your point about how inflation not going away i do think it's one of the reasons why they strip out you know food and gas from the core cpi because it is sticky gas we know it could change right i i don't expect gas to be 5 bucks a gallon next next year but it could be for a little while. Right. And like I said, it's been since 08 since I paid five dollars a gallon. So it can, you know, go down. But, the, but I think it's just with those more, um, I'll say more sensitive uh, uh, products or more, more sensitive uh, classifications where it can go back down. But you're right. Like, you know, there's it's, it's the cost is going to be embedded in it. It'll be there. And so what's the eventuality there? Wages are going to have to go up. Right. Wages haven't really kept up so far. And I think that has been a little bit of a piece of optimism for uh, uh, for the people that uh, I guess I'll call them the inflation bears. I don't know what that is, if that that's someone who doesn't think inflation is going to be around long. But, uh, you know, like, hey, wages haven't really followed yet, but we've got how many job openings was on the jolts this past week? Eleven million. Right. Is that that's like a crazy amount of job openings? So employers will have to pay more. So. Yeah, it's here. It's going to be here for a while, and I'm not sure the Fed's going to be able to do anything about it at this point. By the way, if they raised rates six months ago, I don't think it would have mattered anyway, right? Everyone's all over the Fed about uh, letting inflation go too long before letting QE roll off and before raising rates. It feels like at this point, it doesn't. It wouldn't have mattered, right? With uh, what's going on in the world right now, I'm not sure I've said that to anybody yet, but there you go. I'm throwing that in there.
0: No, I, and I agree. And to further on your point, because I, I, I don't believe that it's an interest rate issue right now. I mean, we had low interest rates for a long time. And, and some people might be like, you know, we knew this was going to happen, printing all this money for years and years and years. It didn't happen when, when a lot of people said it would. But the difference this time is the fiscal side. Like, if it rather than raising rates, the US government would almost have to say, you know what? We send all that money out. We we put all this fiscal stimulus. Fiscal means stuff that politicians and, and Congress and, and Senate, you know, they approve and they put out. Like when, it, when they sent the checks out, that was a massive delivery of a pretty high percentage of our GDP that went that got you know put into the economy. So to me, like it, it, you would almost have to have a fiscal response where they reversed that and said, hey, everyone has to send us money now. Like We need to take money away off the consumer balance sheets. It's not an interest rate thing. So maybe that's just a different way of saying it, Jay. But um, that's the way I look at it. And I think you're 100% right.
1: Yeah. Well, they could do it with taxes, right, Derek? They'll get it back by raising taxes.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: right? Maybe well, we shouldn't even go there on that one, right? I think we should probably expect higher taxes versus lower taxes. But let's that's, that's not a topic I think we want to touch on today, right?
0: Yeah, and, but, all, but all this does play into the calculus of, okay, what does it do for the demand side of the economy? And if you're doing things that are going to hurt demand, it could be raising rates, it could be raising taxes, it could be tariffs, it could be any number of things. And there are a number of things that could help that. So, I mean, oil is definitely a tax on the consumer. And oil is not something, you know, remember in economics class, it's inelastic and elastic goods. Like people generally, maybe on the margin, but, you know, if somebody has to fill up their their tank to go to work every day, they got to fill it up. There's no, you know, you can't switch to to something else. And by the way, Jay, I did want to mention that on an inflation adjusted basis. So I think this is some people are a little crafty. I'll say crafty. I don't want to say deceitful, because they're not being deceitful, but there's this thing in our world where people put up a chart or they, they quote numbers, and sometimes they're adjusted for inflation, and sometimes they're not. And the price of oil, what I did was I went back and I said, let me look at the WTI, which is West Texas Intermediate, and I'm going to look at it since 1970 every month, the end of the month price. And then I said, you know, let me put $120 a barrel in here and let me adjust all the previous prices to today for inflation. So this is priced in 2022 $20, dollars. And 120 it's not past the peak in 2012 and 2013, it's not past the peak in 2008. And believe it or not, it is actually not past the inflation adjusted peak in late 1970s, you know 1980, which just goes to show you Jay that that 1980 period was that was a massive increase in oil. I mean that was that was bad. But I don't know when I did this. I mean, I know you knew this in your head, but when I when I put this out in the graph, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the equivalent of what happened in 08 of being, would you say, close to $180 per barrel, I think I remember it actually trading at the time in like $145 or something like that, right? And so it, it does help put it in perspective that, hey, you know, we're kind of, yeah, this is kind of high, but you're really running at the same rate that you were running in, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. You know, I think, uh, you know, those are all like pre fracking years, I think, but, uh, you know, just, I, uh, gosh, I, didn't, I don't want to take us political on this at all. Right. But I, I do think that, uh, there was a lot of supply that came in and kind of brought us down from there, but we're just approaching the average of that 2013, 14 uh range of what we saw for for oil so i don't I, yeah i think it's interesting to keep it in perspective um that uh I mean, it'd be interesting to see the gasoline adjusted but still because that's really what affects most people uh unless you're paying for oil for your uh to eat your house but uh, yeah derek i think it's it's we're below the last couple peaks right now and uh which is why it's it doesn't it's what to me it doesn't feel like it has to retrace back down to 60 seventy dollars a barrel I don't I don't think we should probably expect that any anytime soon because it's not excessive right now so I'm with you I think it's uh, it's I think it's a great piece of data that you put together
0: yeah you know what? I, at some point I can pull the, the gas it gets a little um, so what seasonally people, adjusted all that kind of good stuff right yeah right now, but stuff. also you just you like the 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 price of a barrel of oil, although there could be tariffs or things in there, really that's that's a little more pure. When you look at gasoline, like California has a dollar per gallon, you know, between all the taxes they charge, and not every state does that. So yeah, that's uh, true. It, it could throw it all off. I will tell you though, um, and I while we were talking, I pulled this up: the EIA, which is the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Uh, I didn't know what that acronym, you know, off the top of my head, stood for. So now now everybody knows it is interesting. I mean, in 2019, I think it was December. Uh, no, actually, October, that was the first time we'd ever been a net exporter of, of oil in, you know, going back. Um, I mean, I'm going back on this chart back to the early 1970s, and I know I've seen it further. And, you know, I mean, uh, so anyway, I mean, I I just think that's that's sort of interesting as well. And leaving off the discussion about, you know, what should we do with regulation or, you know, all that stuff. Our, our you know, capacity was going up. And to just think, I mean, every U.S. presidential candidate going back to, you know, when I remember in the 1970s, I remember their campaign promise. We're going to, you know, become energy independent. We're going to export our own oil and all this stuff. Well, it never, it never happened. It finally happened, I you know, in 2019. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it, The laws of supply and demand still apply, as to quote Chairman Powell in his uh, congressional testimony. So, you know, we'll see see kind of what goes on there. But um, Jay, I want to transition um, and feel free to to chime in anything else on that. But this volatility regime that we're in, you and I obviously are in the volatility space with options, and we we sell volatility for some of the strategy. We're long volatility in other strategies. And we are seeing a, a regime, I'll call it a volatility regime, that's starting to remind me of 2008, 2009. So maybe just start there, Jay. I mean, talk about uh, the VIX, um, the levels you're seeing, and then you know how long it typically takes to come down. Why don't you, why don't you start us there? Okay,
1: yeah, for sure. So uh, using the VIX, the volatility, CBO's volatility index, Quick definition on it, it is the implied volatility over the next 30 days as defined in the S&P 500 options. So essentially, it looks at the premium and the implied volatility in the individual options between now and the next month. And then it says, "Okay, the options market is predicting this amount of volatility over the next 30 days. And today we're trading at about a 30 VIX, uh, that kind of range. And what that implies to us is that, you know, hey, the mark and that, by the way, the average long term average is more like 20. Um, uh, And uh, what I would say is that when the VIX is implying when it's higher, it's implying a higher move. So higher VIX means higher volatility, which means higher moves day to day in the market. In general, that usually means down days. Right. uh, I always say the markets climb upstairs but fall out windows. I stole that for sure. I didn't make that up. but uh, it's it's true. So you know, when you expect bigger single day movements, it's usually because the expectation is uh, uh, bigger drops coming. So the VIX is kind of that volatility index that typically insinuates higher fear in the market and higher risk. So that's kind of the definition of the VIx. Let's just use vix as the the, the volatility index and the fear index, although, you know, I think I gave it a little more detail than that. Now, you just mentioned 08 to 09, which had some very high volatility, but we saw the same volatility in 2020 with the COVID fears. So, you know, it's interesting when you look at volatility. We just talked about it, or I just mentioned that it's only a 30-day outlook, right? It's a 30-day outlook, and... Um, you know, it's one of those things that doesn't predict years and years, certainly not, you know, single performance, single year performance. So how can the question that becomes, how can volatility kind of be higher and what can you learn from that? And I think what you were insinuating with the 0809 was that, hey, volatility was up for a while, right? It wasn't just a pop in the fall of 8 it was up for a while. And when you actually look at it, volatility, if you like were to expand out a chart of volatility of the VIX through like monthly VIX by, you know, 20 years, right? You'll see that volatility kind of goes through these periods of being elevated and periods of being depressed. Um, when you look at the 08, 07 period, volatility didn't go away after the financial crisis was behind us. Volatility stayed in the market really till about 2013. So if I, so about a five-year period, we had higher volatility. Same thing happened in the last decade, right? Starting in the 98, 99 period, volatility lasted into 20, uh, 2003. Again, a four or five-year period where volatility was just elevated. And the periods between that... It's it's low. Like vol is low, VIX is below twenty almost all the time. It's just smoother, uh, a smoother chart. So, it, you know, what does that mean for where we are today? When I think about where we are today, uh, volatility was low going right into the end of 2019, even the first two months of 2020. Of course. We had uh, the COVID issue hit. Should I call it an issue? I guess it was a pandemic. I'll I'll give it its due. Um, COVID hit and volatility has gone up and it is not retraced. Even though last year was a pretty calm year in the markets, volatility, as measured by the VIX, remained high. So, you know, I would say that we are in the second, just starting the third year of a potential five-year period of higher volatility. So I will, I will pause there, Derek, before we talk about what does that mean uh, to investing, but I'll, I'll, I'll shut up there and let you comment on that whole thing
0: I just gave up. You know, one of the things I was going to ask too, and maybe you'll go into this and, and you can just go into it now, is the idea of, of what it means. Like, does this mean that people still, because I remember in, in 2009, like volatility stayed high even after the danger was done and it stayed high for a while. Um, but maybe talk maybe as you transition, think about that too.
1: Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like it stays, it stays high for a while once it's really become entrenched, right? And you know, we've had a high volatility for the last two years, even though, I, uh, gosh, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to quote me. Jay said COVID's behind us, but it feels like the impact to the market is 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 behind us for now, right? The COVID stuff has had its. You know, swing at giving us you know quick five, six, seven percent declines, but it feels like, especially if you look at the way twenty twenty one performed, the market is you know kind of the market is over COVID. Um, but now we've got what's going on here in you know uh, in the world, whether it's inflation or it's this conflict Ukraine and Russia. You know these issues will get exacerbated, or I should say, the market reaction will be exacerbated when there's a higher range of volatility. And so it's here. It gets embedded. Uh, Investors, mostly traders, by the way, expect bigger moves. I think you just said this just two days ago or three days ago, Derek, the S&P was down, I don't know, 30, 40 points, and it was a half a percent decline day. And you said, well, that felt like a flat day. Well, you take that day and put it into 2017 or 2021, and you go, whoa, can't believe the market was down half a percent today on no news. Right. So it just it kind of builds on itself. And, uh, you know, traders will it'll it'll perpetuate for a while. So, you know, even if we got inflation behind us, even if we got uh, uh, COVID behind us. Historically speaking, volatility will be here for a while. I think it's probably fair to say that the Fed raising rates is something that's going to naturally keep volatility up. Markets tend to do worse in the years when the Fed is raising rates than when they're not. but I think that's probably it as well. So I do think we should expect volatility for quite some time. I think at least a year, probably another two. Well,
0: I like the way you put it too. And and for the audience listening, it's not that COVID or all those things. I mean, we let other people commentate on that, but it's it's what people are fearful of. And I'll give a, a, a less recent example: Greece, the country of Greece, was thought to have been on the the verge of defaulting, and we saw implied volatility. We saw volatility. React to that and be embedded into the market. Do you know today that Greece is no longer anybody's talking about Greece's debt to GDP? It's higher than it was. I think that was 2012, right? Probably somewhere around there. I don't even remember. Where you know CNBC was live in Athens, and you saw the protesters in the back, and they were in front of the, the ruins and everything. And so it's it's not that these things don't matter. It's just the market being more afraid than they already are. And when the market stops being more afraid than it already is of these things, we see the volatility being less impacted. You know, impacted. Again, nothing's changed in, in uh, the debt to GDP levels in, in Greece. Sure, the eurozone has you know done some bailouts and different stuff, but I mean, Jay, I, we always say you know things matter. Like for example, I thought the uh, the rising U.S. debt was a problem in the eighties. Um, apparently, I was wrong. That's not an issue. You know, every year people bring that up and it matters when it matters. Right, Jay? It, ma- it matters when it matters, right? When
1: all of a sudden uh, the market wants to pay attention to it. I, I couldn't agree more. with you. <laughs> and until then, it doesn't matter. I mean, which is kind of silly, which, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, it, g- it gets back to why trying to time and guess what the market
0: is going to do based on the circumstances that are going on can be really, really difficult. So think about you know, we've explained the, the volatility regime, volatility regime, if I would say that properly. And we talked about maybe how it, it tends to stick around, you know, it goes up. I mean, I mean, the spikes tend to, to retreat, but the overall, hey, we're in higher volatility. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think we're going back to a 10 VIX anytime soon. And maybe, you know, think about, so what does it mean for on the as traders, what does it mean for investors? You know how how should people be kind of framing this type of volatility regime?
1: Well, yes,
0: no ten VIX is not. I don't see that coming either. Um, not happening.
1: <laughs> I don't. Listen, I no guarantees here, right? But I'm not. Uh, I'm not counting on the VIX getting there uh, anytime soon. Um, so, yeah. So, what does that mean for us as traders? Well, um, you know. As you mentioned, we have some strategies that are long volatility, some that are short. Strategies that are long volatility, it gets more expensive to put on things like hedges. When you're long volatility, it means you're, you know, you're in a position that would benefit from more volatility, which typically means market going down. For us, that means hedges. So hedges are more expensive. But on the flip side of that, we do have some, you know, you know, we, we run some other strategies that are short volatility, which harvest this volatility uh through by the means of selling option premium right Uh, and so when the market is more fearful meaning higher vix higher implied volatility within the options selling options becomes um you know potentially more lucrative because you're able to kind of capture the fear that's that's reflected in the options chain that i mentioned before when we talked about multiple expansion Um, The other way uh, that I think emotion is represented within the marketplace is the implied volatility of options. Somebody who is willing to pay a dollar for a one percent move today, but or sorry, last year and today they're willing to pay two dollars for a one percent move. They've got to be more um, uh, speculative means the market, you know, they have uh, they're going to pay a lot more for that market movement. Maybe I'll use another example. Maybe instead of them paying the dollar for the 1%, they pay a dollar, but they got to get a 2% movement, right? So, you know, when option prices go up, uh, that is when we look to harvest that volatility. And it's pretty unique, right? There's not a lot of firms out there that are, you know, pred- that have strategies that the predominant rate of growth is premium selling. There are some that do that. Sure, plenty of them. We've been doing it, what, Derek, Gosh, 10, 11 years at this point uh, uh, in, our, in the firm. And so it's it's one of those things that in an environment like this having protection on is great but taking advantage of that volatility is uh is definitely something that uh you know you can do as a as a premium seller of options. Now seller beware, right when it comes to that because you're essentially the seller of insurance. So while I you know say we've been doing it for 11 years it's not like the strategy hasn't had its lumps everything does it's still it still persists and it does well. And it's one of the most asked about things that we do, but things could get nasty sometimes, right? When you're selling volatility, essentially selling puts, when that happens, you're the insurer. And what is the thing the insurer never wants to do? They never want to pay out on the insurance, right? So it's one of those things that I'm not, hopefully I'm not encouraging everybody to go out and start selling puts, but uh, you know, (laughs) it's just one of those things that while you have higher vol. Volatility. Sorry, uh, well, you have higher vol, then you know it's it's you should be able to take advantage of it if you have that ability.
0: I'll mention to people too that uh, anyone wants to learn a little more about how we sell volatility and do some of that. Uh, Derek at zegafinancial.com. That's D E R E K dot M O O R E at Zega. That's Z is in zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financials up to you to spell correctly. J. On the the VIX level, I know the VIX is different from the implied volatility. Let's say on the S and P five hundred, but it's a pretty good proxy, and they tend to to converge and be close at least on the near term option chain. When I look at at the VIX at thirty, I always come back to and there's actually two hundred fifty one trading days this year, um, and I the square root of that is like you know fifteen point eight four. I shouldn't say about. I just did the calculation because like I, I think it was Yeah, like, <laughs> what, about? You're going to go three more decimals to get an exact? Yeah. well, I, I know so. the square root of 252 for years, you know, it's been 15.875 rounded, right? I know that. And then we have the rule of 16, the trade is used on the floor. So essentially, if you take a 30 VIX and you divide it by that 15.84, you get 1.89. Basically, that VIX is implying a one standard deviation range of about 1.8. Nine percent on any given day. Jay, I don't know. Some days the markets have moved, you know, about that. But I, I mean, wouldn't you say it's probably fair given where the market has has been moving of recent? And then maybe you know we could talk a little bit about the, you know, selling volatility is all about uh, the implied volatility and getting paid more than actually winds up being, you know, happening. It's kind of like buying insurance. Uh, Or selling insurance, and then you know the car gets driven all day long and comes back looking no worse for the wear, right? So, uh, but I I think let's maybe start on on that sort of calculations in our minds of is that fair given where markets have been, Jay? Yeah, that's it's a really good point because a thirty VIX we says
1: the market is expecting the S and P to move two percent that day. Right. That's when you say one standard deviation. So break out your stat, stats, book, everybody. Uh, I know Derek has a picture of the bell curve, the standard deviation bell curve right on his right on his uh, his cabinet there. And he looks at it every day. I'm kidding. Um, so break out your standard deviation books and realize that that's about 68 percent of the time, at least one one standard deviation occurs. And so it's, think about that. That's the market is telling you with a VIX of 30, like, hey, we expect almost a 2% move every day, right? So that should happen, you know, three out of the five days this week. That's what we're expecting when we see a VIX of 30. And listen, I I will, I'll I'll quote yesterday and I'll quote today. So this is uh, 310, 311 are the days I'm talking about. The market was down, like, you know, 1% you know, and the VIX went down because it, the market didn't move more than two. Right. So typically I mentioned before that the VIX goes up when there's more fear, usually when the market goes down, that adds to more fear. So the VIX usually goes up. So it's, it's, does it feel right? Yes, Derek, that, um, you know, having a, expecting a every day to move 2% is probably what we should expect. It also tells you that, you know, you, you get the dreaded two standard dev move every once in a while, right? So one of the things that, uh, that really makes people go, wow, is when you have, and I'm making air quotes, a two standard deviation move. That's a real thing in our business. People talk about the day that, you know, you move more than two standard devs. Well, what that means is you had something occur that had, you know, less than a 5% chance of occurring, but it occurred anyway. Today, if we got a two standard dev move, it would be about a four percent move uh, in the SP. That would make that would probably open some people's eyes. But you know, 1% move these days, everyone's like, well, yeah, things are bad. I guess we're gonna move 1%. No one's really blinking an eye. So, you know, putting it all in perspective, again, that VIX is uh, predictive in nature, but it is not exact either, right? What the VIX predicts isn't actually what always happens, it's just the way that the options market is reflecting uh, those predictions and those, you know, the options market is a reflection of real dollars at work, right? So it's not somebody's guess. It's there was somebody that placed a trade that caused implied volatility to go up, which causes the VIX to go up. Those kinds of things, real dollars into the market, you know, imply this predictive move. So anyway, I think I probably went off on a little tangent there on you, but uh, you and I always talk about the dreaded two standard Eve days, right, Derek?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh I it's all about, you know, realized versus implied. But uh yeah, I, I think with I agree, this is gonna be a, this regime will be around for a little while longer, if not for, for some time. And maybe we'll save for another time getting into implied volatility on interest rates, which is higher now, especially given the the Fed move. I just want to do a couple of quick hitters uh before we wrap up. Number one is the Given where oil prices have gone and energy is a component in the CPI, do we actually see CPI year over year when it gets released in April, the March numbers, crest 10%? I will tell you that the inflation now cast, which is just, hey, what's all the information I have right now? Uh, And that will tend to to be more predictive the closer you get to an announcement. I'd say in a 1% month over month for uh march and what is this eight point two eight point three percent cpi for you know year over year so i don't know i mean maybe. any thoughts you know we're already
1: at uh last the, earlier this week actually right we saw the uh fed number come out and it was what 7.8 that was the kind of the official cpi number this week um to stretch it to 10 you know, we're already at 40 year highs on inflation. Um, listen, I, th- I I think it's possible considering, you know, what's gone on the last couple of weeks and, you know, the ripple effect of oil, wheat, nickel. We don't even talk about nickel. We, we don't have to if we don't want to. But uh, all of those things that are kind of going on and, you know, increasing Cost it may take Derek an extra month for that to ripple to the actual consumer, but I, maybe PPI sees you know the producer price index sees it first. But man, I, I, it's hard for me to get behind a ten. But I think that's a that's a nice headline number to get people's attention. Like, will we see ten? I think you got to consider it. I think the market will not like it. By the way,
0: no, that would be that would be problematic. And and to remind everybody, when you're doing year over year now, the March of this year which is 2022 now has to get compared to 2021 March. So you know the the comparables keep going up, you know, it's like same store sales. If you go up this year, then next year you got to compare it to a higher rate. So that might stop it from going up that high, but
1: uh, yeah, it's just also, the law of large numbers, right? Cuz inflation is a rate of change, right? So it's does the rate of change continue at the same
0: pace? And then I don't even know if we should do a contrarian corner this week, because I had a bad beat. In other words, I think it was a couple weeks ago, was it two or three it was probably three weeks ago that I said, uh, "Hey, my contrarian trade would be to go long, emerging market value. Oh boy, was, was that a bad call, Jay? And we did say, <laughs> we always say, don't trade on this. We're just kind of doing a little contra- like if you were going to be a contrarian, like, what's an unloved portion of the market? That was a bad call. Throw well, I, I, yeah, look, but look, actually, I'd
1: like to, so let's turn your, uh, let's find the silver lining in this so like, If you actually had placed that trade, one of the things we always say is, you know, use your, you know, exercise your inner guru if you want and take these flyers on and be a contrarian, but you should still hedge it, right? So if you were hedged, you could, you're, you're, you're willing to kind of take that kind of a risk. But you limit your risk. Right. So that's the only thing we could really control is the amount that we risk. And so when we have wrong calls, which we all make them, uh, <laughs> including myself on the contrarian corner of the very first episode, I think I said, ah, this inflation thing is going to be behind us and you don't want to buy commodities. Right. I don't think that could have been much more wrong either. Again, it's a good it's a good thing you don't have to make those calls for us to make money for our clients, um, right? We, we, but if I did make that call, I would have hedged it. I would have used options and I would have protected it. So yeah, we've both had some bad calls, but uh, the good news is we would never do that without having some sort of a hedge on.
0: Yeah, and, and that goes to, we start out the program talking about the whole idea of multiple ratings and things like that. And one of my basis was a re-rating the multiple higher. I made mention that you know a lot of these emerging market deep value uh, companies. Some of them were in Russia, some you know China and, and Brazil, different parts of the, the EM landscape. And I think you know uh, that re-rated down. The opposite of of my basis for it. So I mean, uh, the the PEs on those I think are back to like 4.7 or something like that. And I, I didn't say which which uh, ETF doesn't matter. Uh, I didn't want anybody to do what I was going to do, but. Yeah, I mean that's down ten percent over ten percent, I think since then, but uh, I don't know do we dare do you have a contrarian play this week or uh, uh, should we uh should we wrap up if you have one, let's hear it though uh,
1: listen it's so well i you know what is the general uh, uh you know accepted uh you know market uh bias right now i and i don't I don't think there's anything to say you're really gonna be a contrarian on right? you've got Rates right, the Fed came down with the expectation of fifty. They're just probably going to go with twenty-five, and we were. That was one that I think you know they're going to take their time on. So you can't really tell. Do they still have to do seven? Do they? So they're just going to slow play it. I'm not sure. Markets going lower. You know, I I, I don't know if this is contrarian or not, right? But I'll, I'll say this: like I I like buying the markets at discounts. It's it's part of the reason why we hedge, right? To preserve capital and then reinvest while the markets are lower. Um, I don't know if this is a contrarian call or not, but uh, I still believe we end the year higher. I still believe we end the year at over 5% gain, you know, in that 5,000 mark on the s and I don't know if that's contrarian or not. I'm not sure where everybody is. But, you know, that's where I when, when people ask me, Jay, what do you think? I still think a lot of the dynamics and a lot of the pieces that were in place at the beginning of the year still will eventually uh, push stocks higher through the end of the year. I don't know if that's contrarian or not, Derek. That might be not contrarian.
0: Yeah, I don't know. And we do have the midterm elections. I know uh, Spencer and I, I'll have him back on as a guest. We'll do our way too early midterm election prediction uh, podcast that we did during the, the presidentials as well. But I'm just, I'm looking at the numbers here. So what's the S&P as we're recording, around 42.50? 42.30. 42.30. Yeah, so that's roughly, it'd have to get to 17% from here to get back to 5,000. Is my math right there? I think my math. Yeah. Around there. 18%. Yep. Yep. So, and if it, and if it does, if it did five, if if it went to 5,000 year over year from the end of 21, that would be what? 7% gain from last year. Uh, let's say we closed at 4800,
1: right? That's that's kind of about where we were, right? So 5000 divided by 4800 is about a 4% gain.
0: Yeah, okay. For the year. So there you go.
1: So maybe I'm not really being a contrarian. That's that's actually pretty 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 vanilla.
0: Well, the the total contrarian trade would be to I you know, I haven't looked at the price of nickel. People can google what the heck happened there. Um but Maybe short commodities. I'm not saying anybody should do that, but it would be a contrarian play. Or don't. Yeah, frown, I got burned on down. that one
1: earlier in this podcast.
0: Yeah, well, don't, don't, don't frown. Double down, and maybe go back and <laughs> look at a sprinkle into uh, that or emerging market value. But there anyways, you go. Don't Let's do, any, get of back don't do any of that. Don't hedge it. Yeah, just hedge it. <laughs> Use like one percent of your portfolio and the rest in uh, hedged equity. All right, Jay. I think we'll we'll call it good for there. We'll be back. Uh, probably maybe next week, maybe not, maybe the week after with you again for another episode. So uh, remind everybody, uh, great. What, what holiday do we have? St. Patrick's Day. If you're looking for gifts for a St. Patrick's Day, why not buy Buy and Hedge, uh, Jay Prestercelli's book, or Broken Pie Chart, my book, both available on Amazon. I mean, who wouldn't want a St. Patrick's Day gift like those two books, Jay? Uh, I couldn't think of anything better.
1: I mean, they make wonderful coasters for you for your for your beer and your corned beef and cabbage.
0: It's great. Just put it right there. There the you table. go. Better than a coaster for St. Patty's Day. Jay, thanks again for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Derek.